welcome back to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Matt Winesett, and I'm joined, as always, by my fellow millennial, Max Frost. On this episode, two young millennials will interview one old millennial, Joseph Sternberg, columnist and editorial board member at The Wall Street Journal. He's out with a new book called The Theft of a Decade, How the Baby Boomers Stole the Millennials' Economic Future. He's a great guest, and we really hope you enjoy it. We did. So without further ado, here's Joe. Joe, thank you so much for joining us on Banter today. Well, it is uh, great to be here talking about this generational war that I feel like I'm trying to start right now. (laughs) So as we sit here from one millennial to another in this air-conditioned office, eating our avocado toast and celebrating the success of your new book, unemployment is at its lowest point in years. Wages are rising. We've had almost 10 years of economic expansion. Things seem pretty good, at least better than the title of your book would suggest, The Theft of a Decade. So... When you say boomers have stolen our economic future, what do you mean by that? Okay, well, this is um, the, the key point to understand, I think, about the economy over the past 10 years is that it did work well for some people, but it didn't work well for um, a lot of other people. Uh, even once we got out of the depth of the Great Recession and were starting to expand very slowly again. And so the story I'm telling in the book is that actually you can figure out who some of the winners and losers were in that economy by looking in terms of age. Uh, It turns out that the financial crisis, the Great Recession, and the slow growth aftermath to that uh, had very different effects on people in America based on how old they were uh, as they were trying to navigate that. Um, you know, certainly older people might have lost money in the housing market uh, when that collapsed in 2007, 2008. But they turned out to have a lot of advantages trying to navigate the job market because they came into this period of uh, very high unemployment uh, with a lot more experience, with more skills uh, that they could use to try to scrounge something up. Uh, what I discovered is that it was a very different story for millennials because of this generation uh, who were really in their mid-20s uh, and younger right at the moment that the crisis and the recession hit uh, were faced with the task of trying to establish themselves in the middle of a historically bad economy. And that has all kinds of implications for what your future is going to look like. If you get off to a rough start, there's a lot of research out there that shows it will take you a decade or more to recover economically from that. So if things are, I mean, that sounds like it's kind of a systemic problem. You know, we came of age during a recession, terrible economy. In what way is that the boomers' fault? Well, yeah, the story that I tell in the book is, uh, first off, taking a look at what had happened to the boomers, which is really the root of a lot of these problems, uh, because the boomers uh, will tell you, and they have told me, uh, that they didn't have such a great time either. I mean, remember, that was the generation that came of age in the stagflation in the late 80s, the deep recession in the early 80s before we hit the boom in that era. Um, And they actually did make an effort to try to learn the lessons from what had happened to them uh, economically. They tried to understand what were the changes that they needed to make to economic policy to revive growth. The problem is I realized that they learned some of the wrong lessons. I think that they learned a lot of wrong lessons about the way that you should try to regulate the economy, about the way you should try to use the government to uh, encourage investment or job creation. Uh, They made mistakes that seemed to work for a while. But as soon as you got into the post-Great Recession period, you had this interaction between Um, a policy environment that had become much more focused on regulating the economy or trying to manage the economy uh, in ways that created winners and losers uh, that were not good for younger workers that were rising into that. 
Um, you know, the boomers uh, embarked on a lot of policy paths that cut off uh, protective avenues for investment that could have created pathways for growth uh, and job creation. Uh, I think that a lot of the firefighting they did during the crisis, even if it arguably helped uh, in the actual depth of the financial panic. And there is argument about whether it helped. Uh, clearly, those were policies that were not going to help the recovery, and especially were not going to help the recovery in ways that would be good for the younger workers that needed it most. Are you talking about quantitative easing here, or which policies specifically? Well, so there is a monetary angle. This is something I think millennials are going to have to learn to talk about, uh, because the you know, monetary policy often sounds very esoteric, but it actually is very important to the kind of story that I'm telling, because the focus on you know, the focus from the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department under both George W. Bush and Barack Obama on reflating the housing market as the pathway to economic revival was terrible for millennials, both because it didn't really revive the economy and because it left us priced out of the housing market. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the uh, distortions in investment that flowed from that. So, for example, you can uh, look at where the benefits from low interest rates and quantitative easing went in the economy. They tended to go to bigger companies rather than smaller companies. That's bad for millennials because uh, the workforce at older companies tends to skew younger, where, where young people – tends to skew older, where young people get opportunities uh, or in the smaller startup companies that were really struggling mightily. But it's not just monetary policy. There, you can look at all of the cliff edges uh, under the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare that um, deterred hiring, particularly at the small companies that tend to hire younger workers. Uh, you can look at various environmental regulations that probably struck the wrong balance between protecting the environment and making sure that we were investing in job creation. Yeah. So you mentioned the cost of housing there. When we hear about boomers kind of screwing over millennials. Growing up, it was all about Social Security, how they're going to bankrupt it before I ever turn 65. But that I, I don't really think about that yet. I do think of housing because, as a wise man once said, the rent is too damn high. Can I blame boomers for that problem, or is it just a simple supply and demand thing? Uh, you can absolutely blame boomers for creating the supply and demand problem. Okay. So, and again, I think a lot of this actually goes back to the job market because one of the dilemmas that uh, millennials find ourselves in is that the American economy has evolved in ways over the past few decades that are creating more and more job opportunities for young people in urban areas where property prices were already very high. And then boomer property owners exacerbate that problem by making it almost impossible to build new housing stock in a lot of places. So there's a supply and demand problem there. There's another monetary policy angle there because apparently uh, Federal Reserve policies succeeded in reviving the economy in the urban areas that needed the help the least. Yeah. So you were pouring a lot of uh, you know this effort into cities like New York or Washington or Los Angeles where there were some blips in the economy, but generally it was healthy already. And so you were pouring gasoline onto a housing market in that way uh, over the past 10 years. And you know there are a bunch of other effects that are only starting to come into focus. I mean, this boomer tendency to stay in their homes forever. I got After the, the book came out uh, recently, I got one email 
uh, from an older boomer woman, I think she would have been born in the early 80s, who was talking about how enraged she feels when she sees these ads for contractors on TV who want to put in the stair lifts or the shower rails so that boomers can stay in houses that are too big for them forever. Uh, There was this breakdown in the sense that there should be a natural life cycle to housing where the boomers should get out of it after the kids are out so that new families can move in. You know, again, going back to the monetary policy, a lot of boomers feel locked in their houses because with interest rates as low as they've been, uh, so many people refinance that you're actually looking at having to pay more for your mortgage if you move. Uh, so, it, you know, saying supply and demand can sometimes suggest that it's just a force of nature. But my point is a lot of this was a choice. So something that strikes me is that you're based in Europe. And generally when people talk about Europe and youth unemployment in Europe in particular, the situation is atrocious. Aren't we doing a lot better here in the U.S.? Aren't we much better off as millennials in the U.S. than in especially Spain or Greece or anywhere else? Or is it bad all over the place? No, we definitely are better off here. And for really interesting reasons, I found that writing this book from Europe uh, gave me a lot of context on on these questions that turned out to be really helpful in terms of my understanding of what was happening in the American economy where I grew up. Um, And the main problem in Europe, which I think that we need to be so careful to avoid uh, here in this country, is that Europe has turned its youth into economic shock absorbers. So it is always true in any downturn, including in America, that young workers are always the most exposed to the effects of that downturn. In Europe, they have amped that up on steroids over the years. And they do that through things like uh, having minimum wages that are much higher relative to the total wage level than what we experience here in the U.S. uh, Through a bunch of policies that favor um, unions and union membership over other forms of employment, and that is an ultimate insider versus outsider phenomenon. And young voters need to be so careful about that because young people are the ultimate outsiders in the economy. We're the ones who need to claw our way into new opportunities. And Europe shows all of the ways, if you're not careful, uh, that you can actually build that wall between the insiders and the outsiders even higher. And what worries me is that those are a lot of ideas that we're actually hearing from some parts of the political spectrum in the U.S. right now. Uh, so it's a, it's a good cautionary tale. Yeah, although some of the people, I guess Bernie Sanders is one of those pe- people suggesting those ideas. But then you also have people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez suggesting things like higher minimum wages, stronger unions, the type of stuff that might lock out the less skilled people from the economy. AOC is not a boomer, though. And is this sorry? Is, is this problem contained to the boomers, or is this just a larger issue with a wrong-headed political philosophy? Well, I think there are two different issues there because it is going to depend on which generation the politician and which generation the voter is coming from. So for someone like a Bernie or an Elizabeth Warren uh, or some of the other older progressives on the scene right now, I do think that a lot of it is just that they've fallen into this mindset of how they think about the economy. And a lot of it is rooted about how they think about the American economy in the 50s and 60s that they grew up with. They remember things like uh, strong unionization and high rates of union membership in that era. And they think that that was actually the ingredient that caused the growth when actually it was the investment and growth that gave workers the bargaining power that made the unions effective. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, that kind of boomer is chasing after that. Now, I think that what happens with the younger, the millennials who are moving in that uh, much more socialist direction, I 
concluded that it is actually because millennials are really casting about for answers to what has happened to us over the past decade and haven't found a convincing you know, explanation from the political center uh, that dominated in the boomer era. I mean, one of the things I found most noticeable researching this book when I looked at the uh, economic policies from the Clinton administration or the George W. Bush administration is even though as a child of 82, I remember growing up and becoming politically aware in that era of what seemed like really bruising political battles between Democrats and Republicans, the actual public policies were traveling in a very narrow lane. And I think millennials are right to want to get out of that lane that produced an economy that was really unstable and that ended up favoring the interests of boomer politicians over millennials. Now, one way that you can get out of that lane is to veer far off toward the left. And I think that Bernie, uh, Elizabeth Warren are perfectly happy to encourage millennials to do that. Uh, one of my pleas uh, in the book is uh, for people of a more free market orientation to not write off millennials. Uh, because even if polls show that uh, if we're asked point blank, do we support socialism, uh, we might, you know, overall a majority of millennials do. If you ask a bunch of other questions about attitude toward entrepreneurship or uh, certain kinds of business activity or specific things that the government does, uh, you end up with a much more complicated picture. And I think that, that says to me that we actually want more political competition. I'm just not always sure that we are getting it uh, from the rightward end of the spectrum yet. So, I mean, to play devil's advocate a bit here, as he knows from hearing me talk about this all the time, millennials, I can't stand millennials for many reasons, especially when you look at like millennial spending habits. And I mean, just like, I mean, anecdotally, when I think of people who spend, you know, $200 a month on a gym membership and they go out to eat at Chipotle five times a week, all this kind of stuff that Not careful, <laughs> sorry, the other, the other generations to my knowledge did not do. Um, kind of just spending money, not saving in the same way, not putting money into retirement retirement accounts the same way. Obviously, there's loans to pay off, which is a huge problem. But in terms of when you look at discretionary spending habits, aren't millennials quite irresponsible and doesn't this contribute or is that just not right? Uh, I think basically that's not right um, I, because – and again, this was something that surprised me a little bit because I was expecting to find exactly the kind of uh, – I was expecting that the data were going to back up the kind of anecdote that you're talking about. But actually, the bigger story is that a lot of um, retailers, a lot of uh, you know other, other people in the economy are actually panicking about millennials right now because we're so thrifty. So if you look at the, the data overall on spending behavior, um, you find that we might prioritize some experiences or we might have a preference for things like a gym membership. But in a lot of other ways, we tend to, for example, I think that we tend to buy clothes less often. Um, and when we do, we tend to prioritize uh, cheaper Brands. I, I heard someone other the, the other day describe uh, the Japanese uh, fashion brand Uniqlo, which is now really pushing into America, as Gap for millennials uh, because yeah. is much it's cheaper than shopping at the Gap, but then uh, it's very popular for that reason. Uh, if you look at uh, metrics like uh, participation in 401k plans, what you find is that millennials participate in those uh, that form of retirement savings at very high rates 
if they are eligible for it. And this is where you run into a big problem for millennials uh, because fewer millennials are eligible for a retirement plan through their workplace at this point in their life cycle because we aren't working enough hours there or uh, we got such a delayed start in the job market that we haven't built up enough tenure to be eligible yet. Uh, so the way I think about it is that actually the millennial spirit is very willing when it comes to uh, this kind of saving or financial responsibility. It's just that the uh, economy has been very weak. And that shows up time and again. I mean, I, I, I've spoken to some uh, investment managers who are terrified right now because millennials don't want to play the stock market. We were so traumatized by what we saw happening in the financial panic mm -hmm. uh, that we are actually the most conservative generation with our investments since the generation that came of age in the Great Depression. Wow. Tell that to all my friends who sank all their money into cryptocurrency. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I mean, I don't, that's how I am. I remember that you, uh, we probably took the same econ class at UVA where our professor basically just told us that you have a better chance throwing darts at the newspaper and investing in stocks that way than actually picking them on your own. Well, basically just to throw your money in an index fund. Well, the, the Wall Street Journal where I, I work as my day job actually ran a hysterical story a couple of weeks where they did just that. Uh, they threw darts at the stock page uh, on the morning of a major investment conference last year and then discovered that the stocks that the darts had picked outperformed the <laughs> conference. And, but I mean, it just goes to show that millennials, I think, actually do have a pretty sophisticated approach to a lot of these things. And one reason also is that the retirement environment for us is very different from what the boomers faced. So when the boomers were entering the economy, you still had a lot of companies that were offering these defined benefit plans where the company would look after the pension, you wouldn't contribute anything yourself, and you would just get the payoff at the end of it. Yeah, millennials are never going to have that. We are always going to be a 401k generation. And so that means that there has never been a time uh, for us in the workforce where he, we have not been acutely aware that we're going to have to be responsible for our own retirement. And that leads to a bunch of interesting changes in that. I think that partly explains why we're so neurotic about money. We can see the retirement savings uh, freight train barreling down the tracks at us, and we're really worried about what happens if we don't save enough. Yeah, so we're pretty conservative investing, but we're not conservative at all politically. And there's the Churchill aphorism that, you know, if you're not a liberal in your 20s, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative in your 40s, you have no brain. Irvin Crystal, who we love here at AEI, says that conservatives have been, are liberals mugged by reality. But you're right that we can't take for granted millennials eventually becoming conservative. Why, why would we be different and why shouldn't we, our generation, become more naturally conservative as, as we age? Well, I think that you can't uh, assume that we are going to go one direction or the other. I think that the key issue is going to be um, whether political leaders, commentators on both the left and the right can figure out effective ways to talk to millennials about what has actually happened to us during the economy. And I think that part of that includes not just telling us to get over ourselves. Um, and, you know, I think this is a particular problem uh, for Republicans right now because the economy has been good the past couple years under Trump. And so there might be this temptation to think, well, what are millennials so unhappy about if the job market is terrific and the youth unemployment rate is now at historic lows alongside the unemployment rate for everyone else. 
One message is that actually, even though it is better for us right now, the millennial problems that we stored up over the past decade haven't gotten, gone away. I think that we're going to have to understand it will take millennials a long time to recover from the economic consequences of that delayed start that we got. And we're going to be looking for uh, politicians that have some kind of explanation for that. I, th I think the imbalance right now is that uh, people like Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or any of a bunch of progressive politicians can spin what sounds to millennials like a convincing story about uh, how the market did it all and more government is the solution. I mean, I think that that is absolutely wrong, and a lot of those policies have the potential to create even worse generational problems than what we have right now. But the basic appeal of it is a recognition that the current system isn't working for a lot of people. And I think that uh, those of us of a more free market bent need to be prepared to admit that and actually talk about how we can apply our own principles to solutions for some of these problems. Now, when you, I think the the book started out with this blog, discussing this blog post, right? right. Of the, I can't remember if you said where it was. But uh, it, well, the, the, so the when I start talking about millennials in the labor market, I started with what I thought was this terrific anecdote with someone who had written into a workplace advice column uh, asking why all of the interns got fired after they started a petition for a new dress code. Yeah. So can can you talk a bit about kind of the relationship and how like millennials like in the workplace, you know, is it true they want special treatment? Is it true that they're like softer than the older generations? Or is that also just incorrect? I, I think there is a certain amount of myth spinning about that. Now, I think that there are probably a bunch of millennials who have uh, graduated into the labor market with unrealistic expectations about what the working world would be like. But it is important to understand where those unrealistic expectations come from. Um, if you have just uh, blown $80,000 on a college degree that you financed with debt because all of the boomers in your life told you that this was the pathway to a fantastically successful career, I actually do have at least a little bit of sympathy for the surprise that you feel when you realize that actually – you know, that $80,000 got you a piece of paper that is a, the ticket of admission into the working world, but you still have a lot of dues to pay, and that you graduated with this education that hasn't taught you a bunch of important things that you need to know to be successful in your career. And that is the main thing that I think emerges when you look at people who have studied millennials in the working world, is the sense that it's not so much that millennials are emotionally needy, which I think is the boomer stereotype. It is that we recognize that uh, it is a very competitive, competitive economy. It's been very difficult for us to claw our way onto the uh, jobs ladder. You can't ever take job security for granted anymore. So when you hear these things about millennials always wanting to meet with their boss or constantly craving one-on-ones uh, or performance reviews. It's not emotional neediness. I think it is a desperation to figure out what is it that we have to do to be good at our jobs so that we can have economic security. Mm -hmm. And you couple that with the fact that millennials are actually very hard workers. I mean, I, I um, already starting to lose count. The book has only been out for a little less than a week while we're having this conversation. And I'm already losing count of the number of millennials I've spoken to who tell me about how they don't have one job, they don't have two jobs, they have three different hustles going on. 
um, at one time because even with this record low unemployment, it can be a difficult environment, especially with all of the student debt. Um, and millennials have learned that you just really need to hustle hard in order to get things to work out for you. Yeah, everybody's got a side hustle now, it seems like. Well, most people, not me. <laughs> maybe, maybe I need one. Uh, well, so you mentioned the debt, and I think, I think maybe in your Wall Street Journal op-ed, which was a p- excerpt from the book, I'm pretty sure you called, or I've seen people call, certainly the Wall Street Journal editorial board does not like Elizabeth Warren's plan to forgive all student debt. But if this was a generational theft, and if the boomers have kind of created these problems, how is that not just generational fairness to forgive all the student debt? Okay, this issue, I think, drives me crazier than almost any other argument that we have about these issues because it is so cynical on the part of the boomer politicians like Elizabeth Warren who are making these proposals. You know, I, I the, the big question that I stumbled into when I was writing this part of the book and was surprised to discover that no one else had talked about is who are the taxpayers who are going to have to foot the bill for this? Yeah. So if you go back and you look at earlier, um, you know, Boomer grasps toward debt forgiveness. Uh, Obama at one point came out with this proposal where if you worked at a low salary and public service job for however many years, uh, you could get some of your debt forgiven at the end of that. Well, I sat down and figured what is the first year that people would be eligible for that? And then I asked myself, who is going to be in the workforce when that happens? And it wasn't going to be the boomers. So a lot of these proposals, and I think that the Elizabeth Warren debt forgiveness plan suffers from the same thing, particularly in an environment where the economy already can't pay its bill or the government can't pay its bills uh, so that any of these programs are going to have to be financed by deficit spending that future taxpayers will have to work to pay off. Well, we millennials are those future taxpayers. It is not going to be Elizabeth Warren and her friends in the faculty lounge. So uh, what, what drives me nuts about this discussion is that so much of it amounts to boomers yet again being generous to millennials with the millennials' own money. And yeah, I think this is an important discussion we have to have about this. I'm not entirely sure myself what the solution to the student debt crisis is going to end up being. But I do think that we need to have a slightly more serious discussion about that than just letting ourselves be gulled into this thought that, well, instead of uh, making you pay your loans now, we will just, uh, as, as you know, former students, we will make you pay your bills in the future plus interest as taxpayers. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, I, know that I feel like pretty much whenever any like political conversation, at least like when we get together and talk about like economics, always student loans come up. It's like the never, it's always the elephant in the room. You know, it's such a momentous problem. But I think it plays into like the fact that millennials are seen as so liberal and so, you know, progressive. Yeah. At the same time, are today's millennials, are they actually more liberal and more progressive than previous generations in their 20s and 30s? Well, it, it's it's not obvious that they are. I mean, you can even find one or two uh, stray academic papers that might uh, find some measures suggesting that millennials are slightly more conservative than the boomers were at this point. I mean, uh, I, I, I try not to get uh, too wrapped around that axle because the reality is that you can never know for sure from surveys. And what really matters is how people vote yeah. on election day. 
But it is notable that uh, millennials don't vote uh, lockstep with the Democratic Party. I think that whatever our ideological leanings, we aren't necessarily partisans. I mean, if millennials had voted for Hillary Clinton in the same proportions that we voted for Barack Obama, she might have been a lot closer to winning some of those states that she lost. And that happened, I think, because millennials uh, you know, weren't voting for a Democrat. They were voting for a candidate, and they just found that you know, having another boomer who you know, didn't seem as with it as Obama had, even though he's a boomer himself, um, you know, caused a lot of millennials to tune out from that. I mean, what's interesting about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is if you look at what actually happened in her congressional district in New York, she didn't lead this uh, progressive youth quake that seized that seat from a Republican. She actually led a progressive youth quake within the Democratic Party. Uh, so uh, part of the story there is just a breakdown in party loyalty and a desire to start taking charge. I, I can't believe that. Obama was also a boomer. He also he just seems so much more you know hip and cool than, than Hillary. But so you mentioned that don't write off the millennials. Politicians have not marketed market policies toward millennials as much as they should have. But didn't Romney and Ryan their whole campaign was just you know down the line free market policies, wasn't it? And millennials is was it just Obama's personal effect that they preferred that? I, I think part of it was personal affect, but part of it also is that um, so far Republicans have really struggled, I think, to talk about these issues in the right way to resonate with the concerns that millennials actually have. So Paul Ryan and entitlement reform is a perfect example of this because he is absolutely right that entitlements are a looming train wreck uh, for millennials in particular. We are not going to be able to afford the bills that the boomers have racked up. But the problem is that if you talk about it just in terms of getting the numbers to add up, I think that a lot of people start tuning out and, and people in general, not just millennials. I mean, boomers don't understand any of this either because the numbers are so astronomical that uh, the human mind can't fathom. And you start thinking, well, if we're into the tens of trillions of dollars, what more is another trillion yeah. here or there? Now – what I think is really important for millennials to understand about something like the entitlements is – so we have a bunch of millennials who are now getting elected to Congress, uh, both Republicans and Democrats, even though the Democrats tend to be a lot uh, noisier and more flamboyant. Mm -hmm. What can these people actually do? So the, the biggest power that Congress has is the power of the purse. And yet these millennial congressmen and women are inheriting a federal budget where 75% of the spending runs on autopilot, most of that for old age entitlements. And it is you know, the question that millennials should be asking themselves um, that maybe uh, your Republicans or other free market politicians can encourage millennials to think about is this issue of if you want to have money left over for our priorities as we start rising into uh, politics and into positions where we can finally take control, we are going to have to solve this problem. We can't afford to allow the boomer generation to continue leeching off of us for the next 30 or 40 years, constraining our ability to devote our productive resources, because we're the ones who will be working, uh, to policies that matter to us. Um, and, you know, maybe if you frame it in those terms, it becomes easier for people to understand what the stakes are. So this may be a bit, this is a bit less tangible, so maybe a bit beyond the purview of your research. But 
I mean, I have the sense, at least, that with millennials, it's kind of like everything is on demand. You know, that's whether it's like Netflix or Spotify or, you know, Tinder, whatever it is. Everyone's like used to just doing whatever right away, mm-hmm. um, having instant access to pretty much everything. Um, do you see this as translating into politics? When I look at, like, you know, Andrew Yang, um, he's tremendous support among a lot of my friends. Yang gang. Yeah. <laughs> even, you know, even people who make a lot of money, um, you know, who are not necessarily struggling millennials. I think the idea of just somebody's just going to give you money or, you know, in any of these kind of more like progressive, really, you know, really far left candidates or Andrew Yang's not really far left, but. But his UBI proposal, you mean? Yeah. Um, I, UBI is kind of, I think, the main manifestation of this, of just like giving something to people and they just want it because they're young, they're used to that. Do you see that as an actual thing or is that, again, just paranoid? No, I mean, I think that there can be an element of that, but uh, you have to remember that millennials are still relatively early in our political life cycle. I mean, the oldest of us, uh, so I am an older millennial born in 82, so I am uh, 37 this year, uh, which is kind of a frightening thought. But, uh, I mean, the, the point is that we're older than most people think we are, but we are also still young enough that we haven't had to confront a lot of these issues yet. Um, And we haven't had to think not just in terms of getting older people to give us stuff, but also think about how are we going to produce the kind of tax revenue that we're ultimately going to need to pay for this. I mean, one interesting question, I, I, I only raise this at the tail end of the book and don't answer it because I don't think that we can answer it yet. It's just an issue about what will millennial attitudes toward technology actually be. I mean, one of the things I thought was fascinating about the boomers is that they have always assumed that there is a technological problem to uh, solution to every problem. Um, you know, are boomer or millennials who grew up in that kind of environment maybe becoming a little more jaded about the things that technology is good for versus the things where we find ourselves getting kind of sick of it? You know, in general. I think just this issue of wanting people to give us free stuff is very soon going to start bumping up against this uh, problem that we are the ones who are also going to have to do the giving. Uh, And we don't know yet uh, what the political ramifications of that would be, which is why I think that it is so important uh, for people who favor a smaller government, more market solution to some of these questions to be presenting a real serious alternative to the younger voters. All right, unfortunately, we are all out of time. The book is called The Theft of a Decade, How the Baby Boomers Stole the Millennials' Economic Future. Joe, thank you for coming on Banter. Well, thanks for having me in. Well, thanks for listening. We hope that you enjoyed the show. If you did, please, please leave a review for us on either iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you download Banter. Uh, If you leave us an especially nice review, we'll read it out on the show to all of our followers. You could have a million new listeners by the end. You could. Or you could tweet at us, uh, mean, nice, whatever, and we might read that out loud, too. We'll do that. Until then, we're also announcing a new banter segment. Pretty soon, we will initiate the first banter book club, where we'll just have a nice little five-minute chat at the end of an episode about the first book, What Went Wrong, by Bernard Lewis, about America's involvement in the Middle East. Neither one of us has read it yet, so... You've got some time if you want to order it and read it yourself and check back in in a few episodes and maybe even email us at banter at AEI.org with any uh, things you want to talk about and we'll include that sometime in June. We'll see. We will see. <laughs> I can hear myself swallowing right now with this water. <laughs> sounds horrible. My avocado toast was good. Yeah, it was. Don't, don't put that in.